said all that, you would get partial credit. Um, but if you said less, I guess no credit, whatever. Okay, so everyone happy? Very happy? Yeah. Better than your break? <laughs> yes. Yes, good. Okay, that, that's, what, that's good. All right, um, we're allegedly finishing Paradise Lost today, and you started reading Paradise Regained, right? And you even expected a quiz on Paradise Regained? But you'll have that on Monday. So that'll be good. Are you liking Paradise Regained? You are? Um, did other people actually start it? So you weren't expecting a quiz on Paradise Regained. Uh-huh. Okay, question five. Okay, um, Paradise Regained, just to, just to, since you haven't started yet, I guess I should say by way of introduction, that it's um, very, very different from Paradise Lost. Uh, Satan is a character in it. Um, Jesus, by that name, the name Jesus, is a character in it. Um, that is to say, the human um, incarnation of the Son appears in Paradise Regained. And in fact, they're the two major characters. Uh, Paradise Lost begins with... Um, uh, Milton describing how um, um, man's first disobedience caused loss of Eden, brings death into the world with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Um, and then the son in Paradise Lost says, account me man, I will become a man, I will become um, just the unjust to save, um, treat me as a human being so that as a human being I can represent humanity to you um, and um, therefore do the right thing as a second Adam, which is a standard um, way, a standard description of Jesus in theology, a second Adam. Um, not only will I become a man, but by doing so, um, it will be, I will be able to uh, be a ringer for Adam and do the right thing where he did the wrong thing. So the way this works in the Gospels and what Milton picks up on in Paradise Regained is that Satan tempted Adam and Eve in Paradise Lost and therefore in Paradise Regained he tries again to tempt the second Adam, Jesus. So Paradise Regained is also about temptation, but it's about temptation withstood. So unlike Adam and Eve who succumb to temptation, Jesus does not succumb to Satan's temptations. Um, he is tempted four times by Satan, and those temptations, and he is rebuffed four times by Jesus. And finally, both in the Gospel and in um, Paradise Regained, I mean, I, it's, it, it's a spoiler, I know, but in both of them, um, Jesus' final um, repudiation of Satan is to say, Get thee behind me. And, and um, that repudiation of Satan um, is the, the fixing, the repair of what Adam and Eve failed to do. Um, so Satan is still attempting to, to tempt Jesus. He's not anything like the dynamic and wonderful character that he is in Paradise Lost. Um, he's not completely um, turned into, into a different character. There's still a little bit of the Satan that we've come to know and admire left in the Satan of Paradise Regained, but not much. Um, and the real um, heroism in, 
Paradise Regained is um, what in Paradise Lost Milton calls um, the fortitude of heroic martyrdom. That is, um, the fortitude of someone who will suffer rather than take the easy way out, which is what the Son, which is what Jesus does in Paradise Regained. So that's the bare bones um, plot, but not the story of Paradise Regained. Paradise Regained actually has a really interesting story to tell. And one of the great things about Milton, in all three of the epics, or um, they are, Milton actually calls them and they could, and gives us a technical vocabulary. He invents a technical vocabulary. For Paradise, Re Paradise Lost is a straight-up epic, like, um, like Homer's two epics, like Virgil's epic, um, like many an epic before Paradise Lost. Milton also, in his prose, talks about something he calls a brief epic. And he has um, some classical antecedents in mind, but the idea of a brief epic is that it's got epic form and tells an epic story, but at much less length. And Paradise Regained, then, for Milton, um, is that brief epic. We might imagine that Paradise Regained was something he already had on his mind even 20 years before he published it, or even 30 years before he published it, because he's already thinking in terms of a brief epic. So Paradise Regained is what's called a brief epic, and essentially it would be um, the amount of stuff that happens in it is roughly the amount of stuff that would happen in a similar stretch of lines in Paradise Lost, which is to say that it's one episode or at least one series of episodes that are all that all have to do with temptation rather than a whole bunch of episodes, which is what Paradise Lost gives you. Paradise Lost gives you a council in hell, um, conversation in heaven, conversation on earth, um, a, a, a description on earth of what went on in heaven before anything that you've already read about in the poem has taken place, uh, a, um, a mistake that follows that description because the people who listened to it um, didn't take the lesson um, deeply enough, and then punishment as well as forgiveness for that mistake. So there are like four or five major different chapters, you could say, in Paradise Lost. Not books. Do not, as some people do, including a plagiarist from last semester, the one sentence he didn't plagiarize was the sentence in which he talked about the chapters of Paradise Lost. Just mentioning. Um, but um, do not call the books of Paradise Lost chapters. I mean chapters in the sense of um, a chapter in, um, in a person's life, a chapter in history. Um, that is a, a significant series of events that have an opening and a closing. And in that sense, you would call Paradise Lost. Um, you would say of Paradise Lost that it was made up of four or five different chapters in the history of the world or in the history of um, the relation of humanity to, um, to the immortals, to the world of the immortals. Um, so Paradise Regained is only one chapter <clears throat> in that sense, four books, one chapter. Um, the other thing that Milton described um, was what we have now come to call a closet drama. That is to say, although that's not his term for it, um, but what that means is something that's written as a play, but is not actually meant to be performed, but is meant to be read. Um, and that's an idea that is uh, very strong for um, people in the Renaissance, because what's happening is 
uh, for the first time in a really long time, people are reading Greek drama, um, which no one read for a thousand years. Um, people are reading Greek drama, and they're reading it. They're not performing it, and it, and they're not even seeing how it would be performed. If you know Shakespeare, um, it makes almost no sense if Shakespeare is your idea of what drama should look like. It makes almost no sense to try to put on something like Oedipus or um, Agamemnon. Too few characters, um, too little happens, and it's all simply these long speeches. So for the Renaissance, at least um, for, for English people in the Renaissance, their idea was you probably get more out of this by reading it than by trying to translate it and perform it. And then what Milton does is he actually, not the first person to do this, but um, probably the greatest, is that he actually writes a drama that is meant to be read. And he says that in the preface to Samson. Um, so that's, um, and in Samson also what you will see is a series of temptations. And again, um, not to spoil things too much, but Samson succumbs to a temptation. Um, he tells Dalila, as we pronounce her name in Samson Agonistes, Delilah to you. He tells Dalila that um, uh, the way to um, take away his powers is to cut his hair. Um, and she tempts him, she begs him, she pleads with him, she seduces him into telling him um, the truth, and he does. So he then succumbs to temptation, and Samson begins, um, the, play, the play, or the Claude's drama Samson begins, with him in um, the mill working for the Philistines um, and blind, much like Milton, eyeless in Gaza at the mill with slaves is Samson's description of himself. So he's using the strength that remains to him in order to um, turn a mill around to grind flour. Usually you use horses to do that, but they're using Samson to do it. Horses or mules or oxen. You know those mills that are pulled by animals? So Samson is doing that at the beginning of Samson, and then he reflects on how he got to this sorry state. Um, but then stuff happens afterwards. Um, so that's the situation that we're in. Um, to go back, however, now to Paradise Lost, um, what we were talking about is the mortality of the people in Paradise Lost um, and what it means for something to be mortal, what it means for something to be a dream. And what the Invocation of Book 7, just, just to quickly summarize um, yesterday's um, conclusion, what the Invocation of Book 7 um, tells us is the extent to which Milton feels that this poem is not only a poem written for mortals, but a poem written by a mortal. That is to say, this is a poem in which audience and writer are in this um, strange and sad and ephemeral situation as, and dreamlike situation as mortal beings. So it's a human reflection on being human. It is not a poem written for God. It's not a poem written for the angels. It's not a poem written for the rebel angels. It's a poem in its second half. The narrator of Paradise Lost has come now to think of what he's doing 
as writing a poem about being human, not a poem about what goes on in heaven and hell anymore, but that anymore is significant because it means psychologically that's not of interest to him anymore. What is of interest to him is the, is the fragility of mortal human experience, the transience of mortal human experience. That's what the poem has now prepared us to take an interest in, and that is what the narrator and what Milton himself are interested in. Now, the reason to stress this is, and I'm, I'm going to be a little bit quick here, um, because we, we, well, I guess we won't really start Paradise Regain today, but still. Um, the reason to stress this is to see that the question of what humans owe each other and what humans need from each other is a very different question from the question what immortal beings owe each other and what they need from each other. So, if you, so just to review, on a sort of plot, in a plot sense, um, what goes on in heaven, what goes on in hell, what goes on on earth. Um, what the rebel angels do is they try to cheer each other up after the fall. So the very first thing that Satan says is he looks at Beelzebub, who is lying next to him in the burning lake, and he can't believe how changed he is. If thou beest he, he says, but oh how fallen, how changed from thyself. So he looks at his mate, at his friend, um, and he says, look what's happened to you. And then later he will look like Archangel Ruined, and he will look at the other fallen angels, how despite the fact that they are for his fault immersed of heaven, nevertheless how faithfully they stand waiting to hear his instructions. So the very first thing that you get in hell is a sense of the faithfulness of the rebel angels to each other. Um, and that is one of their virtues. But it's also not a question of what, at this point, there's no question as to whether um, that faithfulness could go some other way by which some of the rebel angels would say, actually, this was a mistake. We're going to defect to God. We realize the error of our ways. That is to say, that faithfulness is permanent. They fell with him, and now they are permanently in hell with him, and they're not complaining about him. Um, they're not complaining about it. Um, they are still faithful to what they were faithful to. But they didn't fall out of faith. That is to say, it's not the case that because they were faithful, they fell. It's rather that um, being his comrades, they remain faithful to him after they fall, as, uh, um, even though he has led them to destruction. And that does seem to be a good thing. That's going to be an issue with Adam and Eve. How faithful will they be to each other after they fall? And the answer is, well, it is an issue. But they resolve it as faithfulness. They resolve it as, well, we're dying and we're mortal, but we're going to stay together and love each other and have children, even so. So they resolve it, what's clearly correctly in Paradise Lost. That is, they resolve it in terms of recrimination is wrong. 
they begin in mutual recrimination. Um, well, first Adam eats the apple, then they have hot sex, and then they get disgusted with each other. Um, and uh, Milton just represents it in a, in a fairly standard way as post-coital disgust, um, which they never had before they fell. Um, but now they're discussed with each other, and each blames the other for what's happened. And, and um, Adam says, I shouldn't have listened to you. And um, Eve says, you're damn straight you shouldn't have. You were supposed to, you were supposed to take care that this didn't happen. Um, and they get really pissed at each other, and that's wrong. That's the sign that they've fallen, is how angry they get at each other, how quick they are to... Um, to, to withdraw love from each other and to blame each other instead. Um, and, yeah, I knew there was one person there. Um, how quick they are to do that. Um, then, however, the beginning of their, uh, of, of their recovery, of their moral recovery, of their moral regeneration is when they make it up, is when they decide they're in this together, is when they decide, when each decides not to take the other simply as for him or for her in the sense that Duessa is for Red Cross as the person who is um, bad for him. That's allegorical, to treat someone as this is the person who is bad for me and um, I should not have gotten involved with them, and now I hate them. That's to treat them as allegorical, to treat only your own moral life as what counts, and to treat the seductor, let's say, as just that, as a seductor, as a seducer. That's what Duessa would be. That's how Adam and Eve treat each other at first, but then they remember. Each remembers the reality of the other, and that's the beginning of their regeneration. So that's um, one thing to see, is that therefore that virtue which has been given to us, shown us in hell already, yet faithful how they stood, their glory withered, that faithfulness is also the virtue that even the fallen Adam and Eve will return to. Nevertheless, there's no issue in hell of the devils defecting from each other. In heaven, Abdiel says no, to the other followers of Satan and to Satan himself, but he does it alone. He is the single rebel angel who stands up against all the others. In this sense, he is already a type, and I'm going to explain that word type in a second because it's an important one. He's already a type for Jesus as one greater man who will do differently from all other human beings. Okay, the word type that I just used, some of you will know, is a technical term in theology which becomes a term in literary criticism also. Um, and our word typical comes from, um, generally comes from, from this. The idea of a type is that there are prefigurations of later biblical or post-biblical events that occur earlier in the Bible. So, for example, um, Adam is a type for Jesus. That is, Adam is the first man 
And Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the thing that Adam prefigures. So type and prefiguration are practically synonymous terms. A type is what prefigures something else. Um, and <coughs> a whole lot of the New Testament is a typological, what's called a typological fulfillment of the Old Testament. So this is, Paul already talks about this um, at, in, in fairly obvious ways, that um, Jesus, that David as the great king of the Jews is a type for his descendant, Jesus, who is the true king of the Jews. Um, later interpreters of the Bible saw the Old Testament coming true, becoming understandable in various ways all over the New Testament. So to take another typical moment, Moses, as you know, strikes the rock in the wilderness to get water for the children of Israel, but because he does it twice, he is punished for this. Um, and that punishment is he himself never gets to go to the promised land. Um, striking the rock with his staff so that water comes out of it um, is going to is a prefiguration, say the readers, um, typological readers of the New Testament, of the soldier striking Jesus' side with the spear so that water comes out of it. Um, and um, the um, uh, that idea that you see something and you get a kind of understanding of a human structure or situation, and then you see it again with that understanding in mind so that you can see it more fully what's going on the second time. That's an idea of biblical exegesis. That's also a principle of narrative. And the principle of narrative basically is, um, if any of you have seen or... Um, or read No Country for Old Men. Um, so uh, I'm never sure how to pronounce the name, but Sugar um, does the thing where he flips a coin. So he flips a coin early on, um, and a terrible fate is averted because the coin comes up heads. Um, and then at the very end of the book, um, he flips the coin again. And because you already know what's going on when he flips a coin, you understand the situation the second time it goes on. Any good narrative will explain its climactic situations so that it doesn't have to worry about explaining to you exactly what's going on at the climax. It will explain the climactic situation by prefiguring the climactic situation earlier on, by having an episode which will have the same stakes as the climactic episode occur early on, you know, every, I mean, J.K. Rowling is particularly good at this, but I were particularly obvious about this, that, you know, Harry always learns some spell or Hermione or whatever, learns something, um, some new thing in the first third of the book that will then turn out to be crucial in the climactic moment of the book. Um, look, Hermione, she's able to go back in time and, and be in two places at the same time. Um, she's such a weenie, the way she's working so hard and taking all these classes. Um, and, um, but of course, you need to know 
and you need to have all this conversation about how tired she is and about all the time turning she does, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need to know all that in order then to be able to understand what happens in the climactic situation of the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yes, shh, shh, shh. Not everyone, has everyone read it? No one, or seen it? Oh, I've read and seen. Okay. So, and it didn't bother you. So you're a time turner yourself. Oh, well, they don't really, they don't say that she's time turning until, until the climax, actually, yeah. until the end. They just refer to her as being really tired. And then, it's, and then Dumbledore is like, you know what to do. And then it's like, oh, by the way, she's been time turning this yeah. whole time. Yeah, okay, but the point is that you're... No clue why she's so tired. Yeah, 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 but the point is that you're... Okay. Invisibility, cloak, map, whatever. The point is there's some, um, you know, broom, quidditch. The point is there's some, um, there's some element of the story that you get an explanation of before it's put to use. Because what you don't want to be doing is explaining the element at the very moment that it's being put to use. Um, so, the, you, so you need to get the explanation beforehand. Um, and I think in the book, actually, there it is... Well, Dumbledore talks about it before they actually do the time turn. Yeah, he talks yeah. about Yeah, yeah, but we know. That's all, yeah. that's all that matters, is that we know. Um, so <coughs> um, in Paradise Lost, uh, 